Yeah. There's nothing more exciting for a pastor than to listen to their church sing. And uh, thank you for joining in and singing and understanding that through this transition that we're in, there's going to be some rough spots, but you guys did great today. What an encouragement that was to me. I hope that was just as encouraging to you. Tell them after service how much you appreciate them. They did a great job. My name is Scott Johnson. I'm the pastor here at Calvary La Junta. And I am so grateful to have you here this morning. Um, we are in the book of Galatians for those of you that are new. Oh, yes, I forgot. The kids, time for the kids to go to class. I will get used to that. But we are in the book of Galatians. We've been into our study for Galatians for a few months now. We're currently in Galatians 5. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. And uh, I'd like to take this moment to pray before we get started. Okay? Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just, take, we just thank you, Lord, for your, for your word. We thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for the hearts of our people who sing so graciously and so boldly and so wonderfully to you this morning. What a joy it is to hear the voices raised and praising your holy name. And Lord, as we come now into the time of, of the study of your word, the preaching of your word, I pray, God, that through the words that you have given me this week, Lord, that I would, I would preach them well. That it would be your words that would be spoken through me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Open our hearts to hear the message, Lord. And to understand what it is that you are saying to us through your word. We just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read an article to you from Time Magazine from 1980. And I know that was a long time ago, but this is actually kind of an interesting and funny story that will go along with our message this morning. The article starts and it says, To observers at the finish line, Rosie Ruiz must have seemed like the fittest athlete ever to run the Boston Marathon. On this day, April 21st in 1980, the 26-year-old New Yorker finished first among the marathon's women runners in near record time, just over two and a half hours. Does anybody know who Rosie Ruiz is. Does anybody remember who Rosie Ruiz Good, good. I remember her. And I was writing the sermon, I was thinking, gosh, what can we get for an illustration or a starter to talk about running? And I remembered her. Oh, wait, this gets great. Even more impressive than her time, when, she, when officials crowned her the winner, she was barely sweating. According to Mass Moments, the Massachusetts Foundation for the Humanities online historic almanac, her hair was still perfectly styled and her face was hardly flushed after the 26-mile race. Ruiz made winning a marathon look easy. And it was. Using her signature strategy, don't run the whole thing. Officials were dubious, however, Partly because of her unsweaty nonchalance and partly because no one, neither competitors nor spectators, 
could remember having seen her during the first 25 miles. When witnesses came forward a few days later to say that they had seen her run onto the course from the sidelines, just a mile from the finish line, her medal was revoked. More deception was revealed when the New York Marathon officials looked into Ruiz's 24th place finish in that race and discovered that she had used a similar strategy to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And in case you aren't familiar with the Boston Marathon, you, you do have to have a qualifying time in order just to run in it. Otherwise, there would be millions of people that would want to run in it. This is how she did it. She took the subway instead of running most of the course. According to the New York Daily News, Ruiz explained the fact that she was wearing a marathon number by telling fellow subway riders that she had twisted her ankle and just wanted to see the end of the race. So what is the lesson here for us from Rosie's cheating? Well, it's this. That there is no shortcuts in anything. You will be caught. In racing, in life, and certainly not as a disciple of Jesus. We are called to flee from sin quickly. But we are also called to finish the lengthy journey to become like Jesus. But there are no shortcuts. No matter what, what race we run at the time that we are running it. And this is what Paul is getting to in our passage this morning. But before we even move ahead with that, I want to take a minute and look back and see what Paul told us last week. Because this message is a continuation from what he said last week. And I want us to understand and remember what he said. So what we need to remember from last week was that Paul was summarizing the danger of accepting circumcision and adding to adding it to the salvation equation, which if you were here, you remember that's, that Jesus plus nothing else equals salvation. Jesus plus anything else equals destruction. Paul outlined the consequences of adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said that if you add to the gospel by adding circumcision or anything else for that matter, Christ is no advantage to you. The second thing he said was that by adding things to the gospel, in this case circumcision, in following the, the, um, the feasts and the weeks and things of, of the Old Testament law, obligates a person to keep the whole law. You can't just pick and choose what you want to follow. Then you decide that you must follow the entire law. And then Paul gets really serious. And the third thing he said is that, that this causes you to be severed. From Jesus. You're severed from Jesus because Jesus is not enough for you. And there's no need for him. So you are severed from him. And then fourth, you fall from grace. You fall from grace. So there is great danger to adding to the gospel. Great danger. And we're going to talk about that in more detail even today. And then in verse 6, Paul explained once again to the Galatians that if you are in Christ... If you are in Christ, in other words, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who put your faith and trust in Him, in Him alone, by faith alone, then circumcision 
or not being circumcised really doesn't mean anything. It's not the idea of circumcision itself, which in our generation today, most men get circumcised. It is a, uh, an option for parents to decide when they have a son. But it has nothing to do with our salvation. Paul's issue was adding things to the gospel, trying to say that Jesus isn't enough. The only thing that matters is faith in Christ working through love. And now in verses 5, chapter 5, verse, uh, verses 7 through 12, Paul questions the Galatians on their current co- course to listen to the false teaching Judaizers again. Similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 6, when he started out the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatian churches, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Let's read our passage this morning as we get started. We're going to look at Galatians 5, starting in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 12. Starting in verse 7, he says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. As you can tell, this is not necessarily what I would call a fun passage, but then again, the book of Galatians isn't exactly a fun book. But it takes us into places that we need to go. This is a place we need to go, not just what we, need to, what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And there's four points in our message this morning, and our first point is that you are running so well. What distracted you? Looking at verse 7, again he says, You were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. And again, similar to what Paul said in chapter 1, he reiterates that the Galatians were on the right track. They were in the right lane. They were entered into the correct race. They were running with great form. What happened? Who distracted them? Who pulled a Rosie Ruiz on them and cut in front and blocked them from staying on course? Paul is reminding them again that the message that he first brought them, the message of the freedom of the gospel in Christ alone, by faith alone, seems to have been abandoned. Who was getting in the way and keeping them from obeying his message? To not add or take away anything in the gospel of hope. See, Paul is not just a missionary. He is a pastor-shepherd. And he loves his people. Each church he planted, he cared and prayed for and loved the people in those churches like they were his own kids. And he was concerned about where they were headed. Now grammatically, when we look at this, the grammar of this particular point he's making is saying that something happened in the past, and now in the present it's hindering you 
from following the message that I gave to you. What is it? Who is it? One thing we need to remember is that Paul really isn't so concerned about the who because he knows who the who is. Again, this is similar to what Paul said in Galatians 3.1. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They were distracted. Their ears and their eyes were diverted from the truth for a lie. Picture a man or a woman running a race, and they are comfortably winning it. And in the middle of it, they look in the stands, and they see a pretty girl or a handsome man waving at them from the stands, trying to get their attention. And then they're, they're like in a trance, like someone cast a spell on them, and they stop, and they wave back. In fact, they leave the race itself and head for the stands. And once they get to the person who is waving at them, they see they weren't the cute man or woman that they thought they were. In fact, they were hideous. They were scarred with warts and tumors and blisters on them instead. They looked like the orcs in the Lord of the Rings movies. They had given up winning the race for an illusion, a lie. This is what Paul is talking about. That we must not allow ourselves to get distracted by the, the next shiny thing or really cool thing that someone says. We must not allow ourselves to be found disobedient. We must be found to be faithful with our lamps lit at all times, trusting in the good old story of the gospel of Christ. Paul knows who the distractors are. He knows who is stepping in front of the Galatians. And it's those false teachers who want their message to be heard. The ones who are ear-tickling the Galatians. They're modifying the gospel, which means that it's no gospel at all. And as we look to verses 8-10, through 10, Paul really starts to explain the danger the Galatians are finding themselves in. But even through this trial, Paul keeps his faith in the Galatian church. Our second point is, a little poison won't hurt, will it? We look at verses 8 through 10. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In verse 8, Paul alludes that he is aware of the false teacher's identity, but he doesn't reveal who they are. But he knows that it isn't him. And he also knows that it is not the Lord. And then in verse 9, Paul uses a proverb to illustrate what the issue really is. What is the problem that the Galatian church is facing? What they are doing to themselves. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Or as the NIV puts it, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. It is through this proverb that Paul explains what a little compromise in the gospel message will do and how dangerous it is and why it cannot be tolerated. Now I'm going to tell you I'm not much of a bread maker, but this much I do know 
that it doesn't take a whole lot of yeast to be added to a bunch of dough to work its way through the whole batch. And this is what we need to know about yeast. It starts out as a small, tiny, one-cell organism. And then it gets activated when it comes in contact with starch and sugar. And then it spreads itself through everything. It doesn't take much. In Paul's proverb, what he is saying is, is that it's the same as compromising the gospel. In this case, for the Galatians to add circumcision and, and to follow the feasts and the holy days, to the Galatians, it seems like it's small and trivial compromise and it wouldn't be harmful. In fact, it could give rise to more holiness and closeness to God. Look at how holy we will be if we add these things, if we follow the Jewish law and we become like His people and we follow the feast. Look, look at us. And there's the danger. Look at us. The problem with compromise is that God does not tolerate the compromise of His Word. In the law itself, in Deuteronomy 4.2, the Lord warns through Moses, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. This is God's message to the nation of Israel right before they go into the promised land. That they shall not add to or take away from the commandments that He has given us. And then in the New Testament, in Revelation 22, 16-19, Jesus says this through John. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. See, Jesus paid the price for us. He took the cost. And then he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Do you see the danger of adding to and taking away from God's word? It is horrifying. We are not to take away or add from it. It is his words. It is not ours. God has given it to us so we can know what he desires for us, what he commands us to do, and how to live for Him. How to relate to Him as our King and our Lord. It is His path to redemption, forgiveness, and salvation. We have absolutely nothing to do with it. Period. But we are called to hear it, to learn it, and to obey it. Adding to it or taking away is to your extreme peril.
I know that we have some new folks here, so some of you have not heard this. You didn't even know we had a ministry out of Fort Lyon, but some of you have heard about our week there. That we are no longer allowed to go and teach at Fort Lyon. A week and a half ago, we gave a message that was from Jude 1, 1 through 4. A very powerful and strong message about sexual sins of all kinds, including homosexuality. Monday, I received a call from the director of the facility and was told that she had received some complaints about it. She asked if it were true that we addressed homosexuality as a sin. I said, yes, because it is. Scripture is clear about this, but it is one of many sins. She asked if we could stop talking about that one sin because she deals with a, a whole society of residents and is a state-funded facility. I told her that we cannot compromise our message. We are called to preach the full gospel. Our entire conversation was very cordial, and I understand where the facility stands on things. But she disagrees with our interpretation of the issue, but she respects our stance. I told her my team would talk it over, so Dennis, Matt, and I talked it over on Wednesday, and then we were going to get back with her with our final decision. We had already talked and agreed that we were not going to compromise on Scripture, that we cannot do it for the things that we just talked about. If we compromise on just that, what other sin are we going to compromise on? What if somebody gets mad because they take the Lord's name in vain and they enjoy that? Because there are a lot of people who like to cuss. What if that becomes a sin that they don't want to hear and they tell us that we can't say that one? What about someone who wants to have multiple wives and they find adultery to be offensive? That's not a sin. So stop talking about it. Do you see where this goes? We cannot compromise even a tiny bit on the gospel. We must stand for the truth of God's word. Look, we have talked about many sins at Fort Lyon. Homosexuality is not the only sin we dwell on ever. Even here, we hardly talk about it. But it's the headline issue of the time. And now, because of that, we are not able to be there. But we can't compromise on God's word. And we won't. And we don't. Because the line is drawn at the feet of God's entire word. And we dare not cross over it one inch. I tried to reach um, the lady at the facility by phone on Wednesday, but I couldn't. So on Thursday, I wrote an email to her and explained our position and laid out the gospel of Christ to her so she could see what it is that we say every week. And we, how we talk about all different kinds of sins. That we don't hate anyone in spite of what people might think now. And just as we did last Wednesday, we gave the same message that we have given before. I told her we cannot and we will not compromise our message. We won't do it. Even if it means to not be there. One thing Matt told me, and I don't have this written in my notes, but I thought about this this morning and I want to share this with you. I loved going to Fort Lyon with everything that is in my soul. It was one of my favorite things to do. But I believe 
and Matt helped me see this, that God wanted me to say that I love him more than I love Fort Lyon. And I have to. And I do. And God wanted me to see that I would be faithful to him and his word as I step into the place as your pastor. I cannot and will not compromise on God's word for you. I can't. If I do, how can you trust me? How can God trust me? God wouldn't let me be here. I couldn't fail the first test he gave me. So, without regret, although terribly sad, it's like grieving the loss of a person that I love dearly, we will not be going back to Fort Lyon on Wednesday nights as of now. Now, some of you might think, well, if it means so much of you to be there, and you love the people like you say you do, why couldn't you just, on this one thing? Well, that's a fair question to ask. But let me ask you this. Let me, let me share you this. Is it loving to let someone who has been drinking or is high from whatever substance of choice drive while they are intoxicated at their own peril and to the peril of whoever else is in their car or others on the road just because they feel like they're okay to drive? Of course not. Is it loving to let someone knowingly commit suicide because they want to? No, it isn't. When we hear of somebody who wants to commit suicide, we immediately want to intervene. Is it loving to let someone run into a raging fire to retrieve their pet because they love it so much? No, it isn't. It isn't. And I know that these are extreme examples, and some of you may say, well, this has nothing to do with what you're talking about. And you might be right, but I'm trying to make a point. So let me, let me put it this way then. Sin is the enemy of God. God hates it. It separates us from God. For eternity, unless it is dealt with, and is an addressed with the Holy Spirit by the power of God's Word in love. So let me ask you this. Is it loving to let someone live in sin and darkness and be eternally separated from God, to live their life in eternal damnation if we know the solution to their sin. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality at all. I'm talking about all sin. I'm talking about leaving them in their sin without any chance to hear the gospel of Jesus. The message of his forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to him. The gospel that brings life instead of eternal separation in hell. No, it isn't. Love is standing in the gap, pointing out their sin, and then point them to the solution which is found in the loving arms of Jesus. Love is telling them the hard truth. Now I know that for some of you that what I said might hit you really hard. I hope you understand that I do have compassion and empathy for the people at Fort Lyon and, and, and for anyone who's dealing with these issues. Listen, in my own family, I deal with unbelief. 
I know right now there are members of my family that if they don't turn to Christ and surrender themselves to Him in, their gospel, in His gospel, they will not be in heaven with me. And I grieve that and pray for them every single day. But I cannot change the message of God to make them feel good about themselves. That is not loving. That is allowing bad yeast into the dough and spoiling it. I don't say these things because I want to. I say these things because as your pastor, I have to. I owe it to you and to God to preach the whole truth. And if I don't, what kind of pastor would I be? How can you trust me to speak the truth? But there is good news. There is good news. The good news is in verse 10. And Paul tells the Galatians is he is confident. He is confident that they will return to their senses and return to the only true gospel of Jesus Christ. He is confident in the Galatians who have truly put their faith and trust in Jesus, in his work on the cross, in his triumphant resurrection, and have received the Holy Spirit to hold to the truth and not compromise. Paul knows the enemies of the gospel will be under God's wrath, as we read about in Revelation 22. God will deal with his enemies. His righteous justice will prevail. There is no doubt about that. 1 John 3.8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But the Lord did give us a way to escape His wrath. And that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we must never forget that. John three sixteen through 18 He says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The hard part and the difficult part that some will never believe. And some of those will be close to us. And Paul addresses in verse 11 that it's the true teachers that are being persecuted. And that is our third point. The true teachers are being persecuted. Galatians 5.11, Paul says this, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What Paul is saying here is this. He says that he has gotten wind of the fact that some of these false teaching Judaizers are passing a rumor that he has relented and compromised in his own teaching and belief in saying circumcision is fine and harmless to add to the gospel. In fact, he is for it. But... 
as we saw a few weeks ago when we were going through Galatians chapter 2, in verses 1 through 3, Paul actually said this. He says, Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that they were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my, command, my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Titus, a Gentile, was not circumcised. But for you Bible scholars out there, you might be wondering, well, what about Timothy? Didn't Paul have Timothy circumcised? Acts 16, 1-3 records this very well. It says, Paul came to, also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Gentile. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany, accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Gentile. Well, there's two things here about Timothy and Titus that we need to point out. First of all, Titus was a full Gentile with no Jewish blood from what we read. Timothy's mother was a Jew. And Timothy was already a believer. And according to Timothy's mother's Jewish heritage, there's nothing wrong with Timothy being circumcised. And since Timothy was already a believer, his circumcision was not salvific in nature. It did not add to the gospel that saved him because he was already saved. You see, circumcision is not the issue. The issue is whether or not we add it to what we need to have to be saved. Only Jesus saves whether you get circumcised or not, or whether you do anything else or not, doesn't matter. We cannot add to the gospel. The Galatians are being told that circumcision was part of the salvation process. And as Paul writes, as we read earlier in, five, in uh, verses, verse 6 in chapter 5, that circumcision or not being circumcision has no bearing on your salvation if you are in Christ. Only faith working through love does. So then Paul asks, if it were true that I have all of a sudden turned my views to allow circumcision to be a part of the gospel, why am I still being persecuted? And the word for persecuted here means being harassed or troubled or even physically attacked. It's a perfectly rhetorical question. Paul's answer to that, the obvious answer is that I haven't compromised my teaching. Look at what's happening to me. Paul writes this verse that, that really should strike us at the heart. If I were compromising, he says, if I were compromising my teaching, the offense of the cross has been removed. The offense of the cross has been removed. Now what does Paul mean by that? And why is that 
a horrifying thing to really think about, that the offense of the cross has been removed. First, we must look at what is the offense of the cross, and whose offense is it? Ours or the Lord's? What does the word offense mean? Looking at the meaning of the word brings us really to who is offended by the cross that Paul is talking about. The word for offense here in the ESV in the Greek actually means stumbling block. So it would read something like this. The stumbling block of the cross has been removed. So think about that for a second. What does that mean? What is the stumbling block of the cross? The stumbling block of the cross, <coughs> excuse me, of the cross is our sin. It is the idea of the cross itself. When we look at the cross and we see the cross and Jesus bleeding and dying on it, the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, the innocent taking the, the wrath of the guilty, we don't like it. We don't like the idea that we put him there, that our sins put him there. We don't like the fact that we are responsible for the fact that he was tortured and he died. Now the cross for an unbeliever is a mirror to the horror of their sin. Our sin, every sin that has been committed in history and in the future. Your sins, my sins, our loved ones' sins, every single sin. When you see the cross as a mirror, it is offensive. Because what happens when you look in a mirror? You look at yourself. You see yourself. And there he hangs. You see, the cross is supposed to be offensive. It is supposed to be a stumbling block. It is supposed to cause horror in those who look at it and haven't come to Jesus. It is supposed to cause us to want to change. For the believer, it shows the ultimate love of a God who loves us so much he is willing to hang bloody and dying in our place. His love was so great that he, as he was dying, he told his Father to forgive us because we don't understand what we are doing. We don't understand that this horrific scene we see, this mirror that we are looking into, it had to be. We see His love and are grateful beyond words and are transformed and reborn as a new creation, born in the Holy Spirit of God. Believers see the cross and see its necessity. We see how others need its redeeming message. Our hearts grieve for those who turn their back from it because we know Jesus' love from it. All of the sin of the entire universe was placed on Jesus, the innocent. Even the ones that we're told that we cannot talk about. And this is another reason why we cannot compromise even a little bit. This is why we must take a stand for the full truth of God's Word. Every person needs to look in the mirror of the cross. They must deal with the stumbling block in front of them. Is Christ enough 
to admit you are a sinner in need of a Savior and is Christ the one who will save you? Is Christ enough? Is He enough? Again, going back to Fort Lyon, and for me personally, the lesson that I had to learn is, is Christ enough? Even if it means the loss of a mission that I love with all of my heart. Yes, Christ is enough. If I stood alone in this room and not anyone was here, is Christ enough that I would stand here and preach to no one? Which, by the way, I did during COVID. Yes, Christ is enough. Is Christ enough for you to stop what you're doing that is causing you to be separated from Him and turn to Him in repentance and to say, I love you and I need you? Or is your lifestyle more important to you than being saved? Do you love hell enough to be able to keep doing what you're doing and not turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Is Christ enough? Is He enough for everyone here? I cannot answer this question for you. And Paul can't answer it for you. Only you can answer that question. We come to the, the verse 12. And verse 12 is an unsettling verse, to say the least. It says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, for our fourth point, it is the false teachers themselves that should be destroyed. And they will be destroyed. In verse 12, Paul is so upset with the false teachers who are pressing into the Galatians that they must add to the gospel of Jesus that as long as they are circumcising themselves, why not just finish the job and castrate yourselves just like you're trying to castrate the gospel message itself? That is really harsh. Some commentators have said that of all the difficult sayings that Paul has said in the Bible, this might be the most harsh and the most difficult. Because it literally means mutilate yourselves. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this verse because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But the idea of the wickedness of anyone who tries to change the gospel message is evident in what Paul is saying here. The danger of adding to or taking away and not putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is not a game. This is not a video game. This is not something where you die in a video game and you get a new life. You have one shot you're here on earth for a very brief time. And then you're going to be spending eternity somewhere. Eternity is never ending, in case you didn't know that. It's infinite. Where do you want to spend it? You want to spend it in heaven? With the Lord? In glory? Or do you want to spend it in hell? with the devil, and death, and pain, 
and separation from God. It's horrifying. It's beyond anything we could even imagine. I know where I want to spend it. And I trust in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. He is my Savior. God's Word is enough. Jesus is enough for me. Is He enough for you? Are you going to compromise it just to make it fit your little lifestyle and what you want to do in life just so you feel good about things? Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer. I challenge you this morning to determine whether or not you accept that answer. Let's pray.